0: Turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 1. No, it's not Galatians. (laughs) (laughs) Having been in the uh, New Testament for the last three and a half years, I decided we ought to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, I was gone last week, if you didn't notice. When I woke up on Sunday last week, it was 29 degrees. Oh, it was a little warmer here, I assume. (laughs) Several years ago, I worked through the Psalms, and when I say I worked through them, what that meant is I randomly picked some of them, because you're well aware that if I actually did every Psalm, we would be here for at least four years, which may not be bad, but I think half of you would get tired of it and leave. And at the time, what I would do was a very scientific process. I would start reading Psalms until I found one I thought I could teach about, and that's the one I would teach about. (laughs) And when I decided to redo Psalms, my first concern was not repeating the ones I had done before. So I actually considered for a short period of time, starting at the end of Psalms and working backwards because I know I didn't get to the end of Psalms. But then I had this epiphany, and that was that if I can't remember which Psalms I did, you certainly can't remember which Psalms I did. So I can just start at the beginning and do the ones I did last time, or something like that. Psalms is a unique book in the Bible. It is a collection of songs or poems that describe the Christian walk. And we're going to see the imagery that is associated with poetry. In this psalms, it says the blessed man is like someone planted as a tree beside the water. It does not mean literally that he is planted by the water. It's imagery. I am a math major. I don't do poetry. <laughs> I have stumbled with poetry all of my life. About. Well, a long time ago, I took the first course at a master's degree in humanities just for the fun of it, and we did a piece of poetry, and I didn't understand it at all. Here I am at work with all the engineers handing out copies of it, trying to collectively figure out what this poem means. One of them takes it home to their wife, who is a literature teacher, and we couldn't make out what this poem meant. We're engineers. What can I say? Uh, several years ago, there were three of us at work that were actually reading this religious journal, and it had poetry in there. And we got into a discussion about one of the poems. And I, I mean, hey, I'm an engineer, right? I found the author of the poem. He teaches in Colorado. I sent him an email. What does this poem mean? He was ecstatic that somebody had read his poem. I mean, he just was... I mean, I told him we had three engineers trying to figure this out. He just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. But the imagery allows us to understand aspects of the Christian walk, the walk with God, that we would not be able to see if I just gave you mathematical formulas. It is poetry. It is song. In fact, today there are people who only sing the psalms. They believe that that is all that we're supposed to sing. And every psalm has been set to music. And they sing the psalms because they are beautiful. So we're going to work our way through some of the psalms. I haven't decided whether we're going to do about 20 of them or about 30 of them. That'll get us well into next year, what with the holidays and all of that stuff. So, if you're going to do the Psalm, you have to start with Psalm 1. And we will start there today. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. One commentator says that this psalm is the book of Proverbs set into poetry. Because of the contrast between the wise man and the foolish, the wise and the wicked, the blessed and the cursed, we are going to see this contrast between the two. And obviously, obviously, What he's trying to convey to us is that we are called to be part of the blessed. That is what we are to do, and how do we do that? And that's the purpose of this psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What we see here is a progression. Let's start at the beginning. Blessed is the man We start the Sermon on the Mount with a series of blessings. God is telling us this is what it takes to be truly happy in this world. To be truly blessed means to live righteously before a holy God. Blessed is the man who avoids three things. We see a progression of our intimacy in relationship with those who are wicked. Let's look at this. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats sits in the seat of scoffers. So I'm walking down the road and somebody walks up to me and we're walking along together. It could be a casual acquaintance, it could be somebody I know, and we're walking along and we're talking. This is a casual relationship. We just happen to run into each other and we're talking with each other. Then we decide to stop because the conversation is really getting interesting. So we're standing side by side as we discuss some issue of the day, some way that we're supposed to live our lives, something. But then the discussion really gets involved our relationships gets more intimate, and we actually go sit down somewhere and have a talk about the meaning of life. Those are the three imagery, the three sets of imagery that are given in this verse: walking down the road, standing and chatting, or actually sitting and having an intimate conversation with another person. And it tells us that there are those who we are not supposed to do these things with? Now, I know a question you're going to ask, and I might answer it in a moment. Just maybe. Didn't Jesus spend his time with sinners? Jesus, friend of sinners. That was the argument that everybody made against him. The Pharisees yelled, he's... Spending his time with lowlifes. I mean, let's face it. Matthew was a tax collector. It doesn't get any worse than that. Yes, go ahead. Her observation is he would have been very lonely if he didn't spend time with sinners. Because the number of people on the planet at the time who were not sinners was One. So we'll speak no. <laughs> so here we are in Psalm chapter 1 reflecting what is said repeatedly in the book of Proverbs and it is telling us there are those who you are not supposed to associate with. Huh? Yet Jesus was a friend of sinners. Let's set that aside so we can understand the full force of this passage, and then we'll try to address that, okay? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked? The counsel of the wicked. We're not talking about just walking with the wicked, we are walking and discussing counsel. We are receiving instructions from those who have turned their back on God. In the book of Proverbs, we would hear that they have lost their fear of God. And we know from Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge, and it is the beginning of wisdom. Pick one. You can't have either without a fear of God. So if I am walking with people who have decided that living before the fear of God is irrelevant to my life, and if I am receiving counsel from them, what kind of counsel am I going to get? Ungodly counsel. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. What is the way of a sinner? In fact, the implication between the ungodly and the sinner, is that the ungodly have turned their back on God, and using terms that are oftentimes uh, applied to in this passage, they are sins of omission. They just don't see the need to do things God's way. When we get to the second verse, when it says actual sinners, these are those that are doing the sins of commission. It's, just, it's not that they're just not doing what they ought to do. They are actively doing something wrong. So, we have the council. Go ahead, Mike. I can give a few example of how this works. Last time you spoke on this, I was driven to memorize it. Uh-huh. And um, every time I told Norma I was going to talk to someone about uh, something, to get their advice, uh-huh. she would say, is he a believer? Mm-hmm. If not a believer, you know what it says in Psalm 1, go <laughs> talk to him. And so I'll take her advice. So she let her go. That's a very good example. <sighs> so we're walking, taking the counsel of the ungodly and then we stop and we stop in the path that the those who are actively doing that which is counter to the will of god we are in the way the path of sinners we see the progression between the ungodly the sinners and finally the seat of the scoffer what is a scoffer Huh? A, mocker. A mocker. Not only am I turning my back on God and saying, I don't need to do what God tells me to do, not only am I actively not doing what God is telling me to do, I have reached the point where I mock those who do what God tells them to do. I mock those who do not sin like I do. Question. Don't answer this question. We live in a society, a world full of mockers. Those who look at the will of God and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I told you a while back, uh, this was a year and a half ago, I started reading a book about Christian ethics, written by a good old-fashioned pagan. And he began the the book by discussing whether there even was such a thing as Christian ethics, because Christians are unethical. Why are they unethical? Well, they hate homosexuals, they don't believe in women's rights, and they started the Crusades. I mean, let's face it. We reach the point where not only are we turning our back on God, not only are we sinning, we begin to mock those, Who actually do the will of God. And it says the blessed man does not walk in the council, stand in the path, or sit at the seat of the mocker. There are those that the blessed man avoids. But wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus the friend of sinners? Aren't we supposed to walk alongside the ungodly, spend time with sinners? As was pointed out, if we don't spend time with sinners, we're going to be very lonely. And we probably can't spend time with ourselves. And don't we need to sit down with those who totally disagree with us to try to share the gospel with them? The passage in Proverbs would lead I mean in Psalms would lead us to believe no. We are to avoid these kinds of people. So what is the difference between Jesus sharing the gospel and us sharing the gospel? while not allowing these people to influence our lives. I think you begin to see the difference. Mike pointed out part of it. Let's say that I wanted to make a big decision in my life. Okay? And I go and I talk to my good old pagan buddy, who has no interest in the ways of God, is actively promoting a lifestyle contrary to that, and by the way, is poking fun at those people who are trying to follow the ways of God. And I go to him, and I seek his advice. What kind of advice am I going to get? It's probably going to be bad. Now, there is a difference between seeking the advice and copying the lifestyle of people and reaching out to those who God has brought into your path and sharing the gospel with them. As I walk through life, some person's going to walk up to me and I'm going to assume at the beginning of my thought process that God has brought them into my life for a purpose. I don't know what it is, but it's for a purpose. And I begin to... Discuss with them the ways of God. And it becomes obvious rather quickly, rather quickly, that they have no interest in the ways of God. Now, at this point, the question is, am I influencing them or are they influencing me? I can assure you, I mean completely assure you that when Jesus Christ sat down with the sinners, the tax collectors, the women, Jesus Christ was influencing them and they were not influencing Jesus Christ. I'm just very confident of that. How do we know whether we are influencing them or they are influencing us? Well, we ask the Holy Spirit to tell us, number one. We ask our friends to tell us, number two. (gasps) But wait a minute. We ask our godly friends to tell us. Because you see, the truth of the matter is, we are more likely to be influenced and deny the influence of those around us. We saw this in the book of Galatians, if you remember. The Judaizers had come in, and a group of people had started following the Judaizers. And that group began to think that they were superior. That group began to look down on the others who were not enlightened. And I trust you have seen this because I know I've seen this. There are those who begin to wade in the pool of ungodly counsel and begin to think that they are enlightened and the rest of us poor schmucks are unaware. The psalmist, the book of Proverbs, are telling us to be careful. I will guarantee, if you get to the seat of the scoffer, those who are actually mocking Christian beliefs and Christian ethics, you're in the wrong place. Now, once again, you're walking down the street. Somebody walks up. God's given them to you for a purpose. You share the gospel. They they respond to the gospel. Hallelujah. Life is great. They start mocking the gospel. And I made the comment years ago, talking through the Sermon on the Mount, that I believe that's what this whole don't cast your pearls before swine means. There reaches a point when I am sharing the gospel with someone that I know it is doing them no good. And my understanding is you back off and you say, okay, Holy Spirit, they're yours now, because I'm not doing any good. When do we reach that point? I don't know, but I've seen that point. When you're dealing with your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your family, your distant cousin, you know you've reached a point where you just need to back off. And as one author says, you back off and you allow the Holy Spirit to do its job. Because you're not doing any good. Trust me, if you're to the seat of the scoffer, it's time to back off. Does that mean you give up? No. You continue to pray. You continue to live the lifestyle that is necessary and you continue to allow the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is the only one who's going to actually make the change in the person's life anyway, let the Holy Spirit do their task. Right. Because there's going to be plenty of other people to talk to. That's what he was telling his disciples. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. I think... Most of us are old enough to know in the light of day what the counsel of the wicked and the counsel of the wise is. And I say in the light of day because we get immersed into situations where that becomes blurry to us. We get caught up in a particular situation and all of a sudden we want to pretend that's not clear. That's when we have to have godly friends, godly, godly friends, who will step up and say, that's the wrong path. We know the path. We just oftentimes choose the wrong path. The way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. But, this is the contrast, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the contrast that we see here. Walking, standing, sitting, versus meditating on the law of God. Now, what is meant by the law of God? When we hear the word law, the first thing we think of is thou shalt, thou shalt not. Primarily say the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. You shall do this. You shouldn't do this. That's the law. At the time, the law would have been the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses. So it's not just here are the instructions, although those are there. It is the promises that God had given the people. It is the instruction that he had given them. It is the history of how God had worked in times past. I think, without doing harm to the passage, you can just say the law of God is the word of God. As given to us. So at the time, it would have been the first five books of Moses. Today, it would encompass all 66 books of the Bible. So on the Word of God, he meditates day and night. But look at his response to it. His delight. Delight. Yesterday, we had birthday dinner at our house for a number of my kids and their spouses. And my wife made... Peach cobbler. She doesn't normally make peach cobbler because she doesn't particularly like peach cobbler. I like peach cobbler. <laughs> peach cobbler with bluebell ice cream on top. Guess what? I delighted. I delighted in eating peach cobbler with bluebell ice cream on top. That is delight. But then most of us, forget you, let's just talk about me. <laughs> most of us sit down at home and go, gosh, I am supposed to be reading the Bible. I don't really want to. I'd much rather be doing something else. But you know, it's good for me like broccoli. <laughs> it isn't peach cobbler with Bluebell ice cream, it is broccoli. And you know what? I will eat blo- broccoli, but I take no delight in eating broccoli. I won't eat cauliflower, but that's another thing. Why is it, why is it that we take no delight or a little delight or not much delight in the word of God because we don't fully appreciate the value of what God has given us. I mean, God has explained to us how the world works. God has explained to us how you can be Blessed by God. God has given us promises of what he has done and will do. He has given us promises of the blessings that he is going to bestow on those who live their lives according to his word. And we ought to delight in his word. We ought to read the promises and go, wow, that's cool. We ought to read the blessings and say, wow. We ought to read the commands and say, that is what I ought to do if I'm going to be blessed because my loving Father told me that that's the way the universe works. It isn't our enemy trying to mess up our lives by telling us to be miserable. That's not what the Word of God is. Here's the observation. If I am not delighting in the Word of God, it's not the Word of God's fault. It just isn't. It is my fault. And what do I do When I am at fault, I repent, I confess, and I ask the Holy Spirit to work in my life so that I would delight in reading God's Word. And I'll just make it easy for you. You know, forget the hard parts for a while. You know, if you don't delight in the book of Leviticus, I'll give you a break. (laughs) But if you don't delight in Psalms... There's something wrong with your whatever. I might add, by the way, just as an aside, we think of Psalms being songs, they are, and we think of songs as being happy, and they are, sometimes. Did you know that there's enough Psalms that are not happy? They are the songs of lament. What does that mean? It means life is tough, and I know it, and God knows it. And I'm going to turn to God even when life is tough. We'll talk about that in just a moment. We ought to find the scripture that is speaking to us, and we are called to meditate on it day and night day and night how much of the day does that cover most of it it's like i've said before when you don't have to think about something there are times when you have to think about something You know, you're working with somebody, you're doing some exercise that has to be done. You have to think about something. But when you don't have to think about something, what do you think about? That's the day and night. It's like over in the New Testament where we are told to pray without ceasing. Without ceasing. What does that mean? It means we are continually in a relationship with god does it mean we are continually going oh god oh god but no it just means that we continually have that access why because we're meditating on the word of god it's like this i'm meditating on the word of god i have memorized a verse Let's just start there. I have memorized a verse and I am meditating on it and I get to a point where I don't understand and I say, God, what does that mean? And sometimes God tells us and sometimes he says, wait, I'll show you later. And he does. It may be years later, but he does. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you fully appreciate the contrast i'm going to go to my best buddy my pagan friend and i'm going to ask him his advice and i'm going to think about what he says or i'm going to go to the word of god and see what it says about a particular situation which one of those paths is going to lead you to god's blessing now you ready for this this is cool As I meditate on the Word of God and I'm walking down the street and that ungodly person walks up to me and he wants to chat with me, guess what has saturated my brain? The Word of God. Who's going to influence whom in that situation? We're more likely to influence them than they are to influence us. Now at this point, I could have an interesting discussion, but I'm not going to, because all of us would come go running from the room with regard to our media input in our lives. Because as we watch movies, as we watch television, as we watch the commercials during the sporting events that we're watching, as we're doing all of that, what are we engaged with? The Word of God or the ungodly, the sinners, and the mockers. I'm not going to talk about that, though. That would be too hard. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And here we have the poetic imagery you drive through, I don't know, West Texas. I drove through West Texas last week. We actually drove a car to my daughter, so we drove up and we flew home. I would say flying is better, but sitting on the uh, sitting on the airplane for two and a half hours waiting to take off, yeah, not so fun. Anyway, out in West Texas, you see trees that are this big. But then you get down close to a river, and you begin to see larger trees, depending on the amount of water in the river. We won't go there. Why? Because the tree that is planted by the river has a continuous source of nourishment. As opposed to the tree that's on the high plain that once in a blue moon it rains or it snows and it gets a little moisture, but most of the time it's pretty dry. So sometimes it grows and sometimes it doesn't, and it looks a little stunted. But the tree that is by the river grows to its full capacity because it is continually receiving the nourishment that it has to have from the water so he who's the he blessed is the man who doesn't do this but delights in the word of god that is the he he is like a tree that is planted by the streams of water why because he is continually receiving the nourishment that he ought to have You know what this is telling you, right? I am either being nourished by the word of God, or I'm starving to death, spiritually. That's what it's saying. I can spend my hours doing this, or I can spend my time doing this. This brings nourishment, this doesn't. It's pretty black and white. And that's why we have difficulty with it. We don't like black and white. We don't like the contrast between what the scripture is telling us. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Now, here's a very easy question a very easy question because we just finished Galatians. Hint, hint. Bears its fruit in season. What is the fruit? Hint, hint. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What is the fruit that God wants to see in our lives? At a minimum. At a minimum. It is the fruit of the Spirit. What I believe he's talking about here is a much broader topic. It is as that fruit is produced in our lives, we see the works of that fruit and we produce good things around us. As we demonstrate love, we produce the works of love to those around us and we begin to influence those instead of being influenced by them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But look what it actually says. It bears its fruit in season. Okay. Here's a hard question for you. I have an apple seed. And I go out into my yard and I plant the apple seed. This is hard. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I want fruit from that apple seed. Am I going to get it? No. No. Why? Because planting it today means that the season to produce it may be several years away. And at that, it produces the fruit at the Right season. What does this mean? It means that sometimes in your life you see the fruit. And then sometimes in your life it looks like nothing's being done. I think I've told you before, there have been times in my life where I have absorbed large amounts of Scripture. And then for some reason, I may go for a period of time where I'm not having that input. But I'm working through what I absorbed at this time. It just takes me some time to digest it. There are seasons of our lives. And there are seasons where you see fruit. And there are seasons when you don't see fruit. Does that mean you're not where God wants you to be? Are you planted by the stream? Are you receiving the nourishment of the scripture? Are you not walking, standing, sitting with the sinners and the scoffers? Are you in the right place? I'm in the right place. Then trust God. That's all you can do. Why? Because the apple tree, or whatever tree it is, produces fruit in its season. And that's what we do. There are seasons of our lives. And that's okay. But I know for a fact, if I plant the apple seed today and I expect fruit tomorrow, I need to go to the grocery store because it's not coming from that apple seed. (laughs) What does that mean? We need to have patience to allow God To work with us. What is our responsibility? We delight in the law of the Lord. And on that law we meditate day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. Now that's a fabulous statement. And if we had another hour we'd talk about it. All that he does prospers. Let me put one big understanding, caveat with this. The righteous man is doing certain things. And those things are, to the best of his ability, righteous. If you believe that I am the godly man, sitting by streams, meditating on the word of God, therefore God should do should allow me to get away with my sin, then you're going down the wrong path. When it says whatever he does prospers, it assumes that he's doing godly things. Because if he's not doing godly things, he needs to back up and look at the earlier verses. So let's just set that aside to begin with. If you're doing ungodly things, don't expect God to bless it. Is that obvious to us? Secondly, we need to remind ourselves that what prospering means from God's perspective isn't necessarily what prospering means from the perspective of the world. You can be the missionary that goes to the faraway country and make very little money, have very little influence in the world affairs, and you can be doing exactly what God wants you to do, and God will prosper that. But it doesn't mean that you're going to be Billy Graham and 100,000 people are going to walk down the aisle. God has put you somewhere to work with what God has given you. And God gives certain gifts to certain people and they accomplish amazing things. Don't compare yourself with them. God wants you to prosper where God has planted you. And that's what you can do. And nothing more. That's okay. God will prosper you. But you have to be able to say, I'm going to accept his definition of prospering. Oh, we're out of town. We have to finish this, though. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What is chaff? I go out and I pick up all the grain you know, from the field, and I bring it all in. And you know what? It's pretty dirty stuff. Why? This may surprise you, but there's dirt out there in that field. (laughs) So I wait for a nice windy day, and I sit there with my shovel, my giant fork, and I kind of toss it up in the air. And guess what? Dirt and all the husky stuff is lighter. So the wind just blows it away, leaving that which is valuable to me. (coughs) The wicked are like the chaff. No weight, no value, no importance. The only job is to get rid of it as quick as you can. Do you see the contrast? The wise man planted by the stream producing fruit... Fruit is what nourishes them and nourishes others. The wicked are like chaff. They reach the end of their lives and they realize everything they did is just being blown away. But let's remind ourselves. In all of our lives, there's probably a lot of chaff and there's fruit. He's drawing a very strong contrast between the blessed and the wicked. We need to acknowledge the fact that within us, as fallen human beings, sometimes we're producing chaff, and sometimes we're producing fruit. What we're called to do is to be like that tree planted by the water, nourished by the scripture, producing the fruit. And we need to acknowledge that some of it's just chaff. What he's really talking about here, though, are those individuals who are just chaff. Those who get to the end and realize it's just all blowing away. And I don't know about you. I don't want my life to be that way. We don't want to be that. The purpose of this psalm is to tell us how to avoid that. The life that has no value because we were too busy walking with the ungodly, talking with the scoffers, and doing that which was contrary to the will of God. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous... At the end time, at the judgment, there's going to be sheep and there's going to be goats. And God is going to separate the two. There is going to be a judgment. And the wicked will not stand, they will not persevere in that day. They're just not going to make the cut. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What does that mean? This whole idea of walking in the way, whether you're walking with the way of the sinners or walking. God knows where you're going. As a believer, that should bring us comfort. Why? Because when I'm in that season of my life where I am not producing fruit, I need to trust that God knows what he's doing. I'm doing what God has called me to do. I am like the tree. I am meditating on the word. I am doing what God has called me to do. And I am trusting in God to produce the fruit. And I believe that he knows my path. That's faith. But the path of the wicked is also known by God. And that path leads to destruction. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. There's the narrow way, and there's the broad way. One leads to life, one leads to destruction. This should not surprise us. This should bring from us one of two responses. We rejoice that God has told us, and we are attempting by grace through the work of the Holy Spirit to live the life that God would have us to live or it should scare the bejeebers out of us. Both are valid responses. Both can be dealt with, because if it scares the bejeebers out of us, we are called, we are instructed, we are warned that we need to do something about it. So, what's the conclusion of this? Go home today and meditate on the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that 24 hours a day, you're sitting in your chair. that's not what that means. But it means there's some time sitting in that chair, and the rest of the time, it's, as you're living life, if you're like me, you're spending your time living life. right? As you're living life, you're thinking about. What did God tell me about this situation? What would God have me to do in this situation? What did God warn me about that I'm about to fall over the cliff doing? That's what it means to meditate on the word of God. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that we can be like trees planted by the river. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.